Hello, Bettys. Welcome to the show. Before we get to our guest today, I just wanted to let you know that we have such an epic list of guests coming up in March. We are talking about menopause. We're talking about autoimmunity. We're talking about muscle building. We're talking about recovery practices. And I don't want you to miss any of it. Even if you are listening to the podcast, you may not necessarily be subscribed. So you're going to have to manually go into your podcast app and press play. I would love for you to hit that subscribe button so that you are getting the podcast as they are released. It's going to make me oh so happy to know that you are a subscriber of the pod. You are officially a Betty in the Bettyverse. And of course, you are never going to miss an episode and be the first to know when it drops. Thank you so much. And I think this is actually what's so important that's also not taught well about stress is that stress coping, stress resilience, bouncing back from stress when it comes is completely trainable. And how much we see stress as distress, survival threat versus you stress, stress we can grow from and become stronger after overcoming in a safe way is good for us. It isn't about being perfect. It's about being better. Hello, my name is Dr. Stephanie Stima, and I host expert discussions with thought leaders in all facets of health, including nutrition, fitness, hormones, stress management, performance, recovery, longevity, health span, and energy production. On this show, we discuss complex science, but then we also alchemize it into actionable everyday living. The ultimate goal with the show is to assist you in making informed decisions about your health and to catapult you into being the hero in your own life. Hello, my Bettys. Welcome back to another episode of Better with Dr. Stephanie. It's me, your host, Dr. Stephanie Estima. And today I'm bringing you a conversation all about stress and its impact on our bodies, the good, the bad, and the ugly. Today, my conversation is with Dr. David Rabin. He is a neuroscientist, a board-certified psychiatrist, and a health tech entrepreneur and inventor who has been studying the impact of chronic stress in humans for more than a decade. He received his medical degree and PhD in neuroscience from Albany Medical College and specialized in psychiatry with a distinction in research at the University of Pittsburgh Medical Center, Western Psychiatric Institute, and clinic. Dr. Rabin has always been fascinated by consciousness and our inherent ability to heal ourselves from injury and illness. And as you might infer, our conversation today is all about how we might engage in healing. So we start our conversation really defining distress, bad stress, and eustress or good stress. Exercise would be a really great example of that. We talk about why we are collectively stressed out and what are the physiological consequences of someone who is in a chronic state of inflammation and stress. And then we talk about mechanisms or interventions that can help amp up parasympathetic function. We talk about breathing. We talk about meditation. There is a vast, vast variety of tools that we explore. We also talk about heart rate variability and why that's an important predictor for longevity, where it comes from. Can we manipulate it? Why do some people have high HRV, others low? Does age affect it, et cetera? And then we talk a lot about the female stress response as well. So this is where I think it really gets interesting, where we are really talking about how females have a unique and distinct stress response from our male counterparts. I think that you are really going to enjoy this conversation. Just before we get to it, I do just want to shout out one of our Betty arm, one of our Bettys from the Betty Army. This is Jackie Burhoff. I hope I'm pronouncing that right. And her latest review came in and I was just delighted to see it. The title is Top Podcast for Women's Health. 
Dr. Stephanie Asimus' podcast has it all. I look forward to her weekly episodes. Her well-grounded interviews are not only inspiring, but a true gift to all practitioners and clients that are interested in women's health, fitness, and holistic well-being. Thank you, Jackie. I know you are busy and important, and leaving reviews like this helps grow the Betty army, if you will, grow it so that other women can find this, in some cases, life-saving information. So if you are loving the show, if you're finding value from it, please rate it, please review it on Apple, or if you're listening to it on Spotify, you can leave a rating there as well. Please enjoy my conversation with Dr. David Rabin. Hey, Bettys, I hope you are enjoying this episode as much as I am. We're going to take a squeak, a little short break, so you can hear a word from our sponsors. Protein is the only macronutrient requirement that changes as we age. In our 40s, 50s, and 60s, protein deficiency is a huge problem, but it doesn't have to be. If you want to build muscle, lose fat, keep your immune system strong, and have all-day energy, you should be eating at least 0.75 grams of protein per pound of body weight, and I'd actually argue it needs to be closer to one gram per pound of ideal body weight. So let's say you're in your 40s, you weigh 150 pounds, that means that you need to be having a bare minimum of 150 grams of protein every single day. So for me, in order for me to do that, I need to get in touch with my inner protein shake and supplement with a high quality protein supplement. Equip Foods Prime Protein is a complete beef protein with the nutritional equivalent of a four ounce grass-fed beef. It's packed with collagen, gelatin, micronutrients your body needs to repair your joints and soft tissues after a heavy workout. There's no chemicals, fillers, binding agents, artificial colors, or sweeteners. And I use this every day after my resistance training workouts. I even bake with it. It tastes like dessert. It doesn't taste like beef. So head over to equipfoods.com forward slash better and use code better at checkout it is going to give you a whopping 20% off of your entire order. Again, that's equipfoods.com forward slash better and use code better at checkout to take off 20% of your order. I'm in my mid forties and I have never felt more energized. I am training five times a week. I'm getting in three bike rides every single week. I recently reached a personal best of 15 neutral grip pull-ups, and I could have literally done it the next day if I wanted to. And I wanted to share with you what I've been doing that is making me feel so great. One of the cornerstones of my daily health regimen is Timeline Nutrition's MitoPure. MitoPure captures a pure form of the molecule urolithin A. This is a postbiotic nutrient that re-energizes your mitochondria, which are the cells that are responsible for making energy and widely considered a cornerstone of longevity. Research has also shown that individuals supplementing with urolithin A experience an increase in muscle strength and endurance without altering their diet or exercise routines, which is why I probably got the 15 PB, the personal best. I recorded a podcast with Dr. Anurag Singh, the scientist who discovered urolithin A, and after our conversation, I started taking it as a recovery tool after my weightlifting sessions. I take it as a supplement, but it also comes in powder form, which is really great for travel. And they've also now combined it with a protein powder. So you can kind of get the two for one deal there. And I've also been using their skincare line, which helps with the skin's collagen and elastin matrix, making the skin look plump and juicy and helping reduce the appearance of fine lines and wrinkles. Right now, Timeline Nutrition is offering my Bettys 10% off at TimelineNutrition.com forward slash better. That's T-I-M-E-L-I-N-E-N-U-T-R-I-T-I-O-N.com slash B-E-T-T-E-R. 
Use code BETTER to get 10% off. Dr. David Raven, welcome to The Better Show. Happy to have you here today. It's such a pleasure to be here with you. Thanks for having me. Yeah, thank you. And we are going to be talking all about stress, the good, the bad, the ugly, and some of the mechanisms of action in terms of maybe and we'll contrast between acute and chronic effects of stress on the body. I think that there is typically a misunderstanding around stress generally. So maybe we can just jump right in and I'll have you, let's define some terms. Let's define some some rules of engagement, if you will, in terms of the difference between a stressor or something that is a good stress for the body and a distressor, something that is going to lead to you know negative outcomes or a negative prognosis. Yeah, that's a great place to start. I think in terms of ground rules, you know, one of the things that has come out of our work and the work that many others did before us is this, you know, understanding of the mind-body connection. And for many generations in science and medicine, we have often been taught that the mind and the body are separate, and that makes understanding stress and how we deal with it very challenging. What the latest neuroscience and medicine research has shown is that the mind and the body are completely and intimately connected all the time. And so how our mind and body interact has a lot to do with how we perceive and inter- and respond to stress and recover from stress. And you mentioned, you know, a couple different kinds of stress. And, you know, we talk about often stress is just one thing, but it's really, it's really, you know, there's two major camps of stress, one of which is what we call commonly as distress, which is stress that is is interpreted as a survival threat to us, whether it actually is a survival threat or not. When we have distress over time, it takes resources from our body, blood predominantly, and then sends it to our stress response system, which is the sympathetic fight or flight nervous system that's responsible for getting us away from an immediate survival threat like a predator chasing us in ch- chasing us and trying to you know end end our situation to lack of air food lack of water lack of shelter these are the kinds of things that could result in an immediate end to our line um, which is critically important for us and all animals to respond to quickly and then there's all the other stress which is what we call u stress or eu stress which is often thought of as as good stress or stress that helps us to grow. And so this would be any stress that is not actually a survival threat that we can, or, or stress that we think is a survival threat, but we can remind ourselves through mindfulness practices and self-awareness practices is not actually threatening to our survival. So this would be things like too many emails, traffic, challenges in our day-to-day with work or with family, social life, et cetera, or news and things that might pressure us and push us to feel uncomfortable, but are not actually an immediate threat to our survival. And so where the mind-body connection comes in is that our bodies don't know the difference by default between actual survival threat and perceived survival threat. It's up to our minds to remind, to help us remember and to remind ourselves that, you know, if I have the opportunity to take a deep breath right now, or I can, you know, engage in a soothing practice like soothing touch or listening to another human being or any kind of safety practice, then I can't possibly be running from a lion right now. And that helps to remind our bodies to take all of the resources we have available and send some of them back to 
our recovery systems, like our sleep and rest system, our digestive system, immune system, our reproductive system, our empathy and connection system, and all the parts of our bodies that we want to be getting resources when we are functioning at at in a safe environment, but we don't want those to get resources when we're running from a lion. So it's really about how does our body distribute its available resources like blood, which there's only so much to go around, and how do we help our bodies using our mental techniques to guide those resources as effectively as possible for recovery? We know that when two individuals, let's say, are exposed to the same stimuli, they may have a completely different response to it. You know, a really easy example here, which is not necessarily related to stress, but it was a stressful time was in the pandemic, we might see two individuals, let's say, on two ends of the political spectrum, see someone wearing a mask, right? It's the same stimulus. And one individual will be like, take that mask off, right? That you don't need the mask, blah, blah, blah. And then the person on, you know, maybe on the other side of the political spectrum, like, oh, my God, thank God this person's wearing a mask. Now I feel safe, right? So they are having a, a completely different experience based on their own, let's say, schemas and filters that they're sort of looking through the lens, looking at the stimulus at. Do we know anything about, and maybe that's maybe that's not the greatest example because it's more of a politically charged one. I guess what, where I was coming from was more of a clinical lens, which is, can we infer from a person's history how they might respond to positively or negatively to a stimuli. So, you know, we are all like, I'm living in a modern city, you're living in in society, in a civilization. And so we don't necessarily have, you know, tigers. I mean, maybe, you know, if you're living in Florida, there's like the crocodiles. <laughs> worry a little bit about that. But don't have those things around all the time. Right. But we but we interpret the the too many emails to your point. We interpret the boss's, you know, side eye or whatever, or the mother's call or whatever it is as a negative event. Are there clues that we might infer from someone's history in terms of how they might interpret that stimulus? Yeah, absolutely. And as a psychiatrist and, and neuroscientist, this has been a big focus of my research over the last couple decades is why do some of us interpret the same kinds of stimuli or stressors as threat versus safety? And the, the mask anal- uh, example is actually a pretty good one because it shows how, you know, I think when we look at wearing a mask, right, just that concept, m- me me choosing or somebody choosing to wear a mask in public because they're afraid of either contaminating somebody else with something that they might have or they're afraid of getting sick from something that somebody else might have doesn't really impact my safety, right? I mean, if anything, somebody I'm interacting with wearing a mask might actually impact might actually make me safer. But if I interpret that there is a greater meaning to the where somebody else wearing a mask that creates political, has political meaning, which it doesn't, it's just a personal choice around, you know, safety with respect to science, we know that respiratory viruses are communicated through air airway particles. So you know, it's not really a political thing. But if I come into an experience like that with a political bias, where I'm taught or I learn beforehand that that people around me shouldn't be wearing masks, and that means something about them, then that will obviously shift the way that I interpret that experience to one of this person's just trying to, you know, they might be afraid and they're trying to protect 
I, me from them or them from me, then that changes the way we think about it, right? And so, so there's the mental, emotional understanding of what does it mean to interact with somebody else who might be wearing a mask? Or what does it mean to interact with somebody else who might be giving me the side eye? What can I learn about their, about how they're feeling coming into this interaction? Rather than what does it mean about me? Or what does it say about me mm-hmm. that I'm having this interaction? And that's a huge issue that we struggle with in our society, which is, you know, the mask example is, is a good one. But this happens all the time. And we often find ourselves in situations interacting with other people who might be upset or might be having a situation going on where they might be afraid. And then we interpret it to mean, what is this? You know, we ask first, what does this mean about me? Rather than asking, what is this person trying to tell me about themselves? Right. And I think that's a simple example of a great question that neuroscience and psychology, you know, really supports in, in the evidence, which is, if I'm interacting with somebody, it's always better to ask, what is this person saying about themselves to me? What are they trying to communicate to me about themselves? Rather than what is this person saying or doing mean about me? Because usually it doesn't have anything to do with me, right? But if I take it personally, de- like out, out the gate, then I'm more likely to respond in a defensive way mm-hmm. uh, because I'm interpreting it to mean something about me, which could threaten me or threaten my connection to my community. And so that's where the mental practices really come in, like the mindfulness, meditation, yoga, attention, control, discipline practices, which we should be teaching, you know, the evidence supports overwhelmingly, we should be teaching kids this from early childhood, which helps us to understand how to enter into situations like this and not take it personally. But I think there's other markers too, right? Like having a high resting heart rate, having a low heart rate variability that we can track with lots of different wearables. If you're in falling into that camp with like an, a heart rate variability under 30 uh, milliseconds or a high heart rate resting over 70 or 80 beats per minute, chances are from what we've seen in the science that you're going to respond to stress in a less ideal way, meaning that you're more likely to perceive and look at a situation as distress, meaning Whatever's happening around me, whether it's too much, too much loud noise, too many emails, too many responsibilities, too much news, or somebody else wearing a mask means something about me and my safety, which it doesn't. And most of the time, and when we're in that state, when our body is less recovered, meaning it's demonstrated by high heart rate, low heart rate variability, less means less recovery, then we're more likely to respond from a position of threat. So that's, those are just some of the markers that we can think about psychologically, mentally, emotionally, and physically that help us to predict how prepared somebody is to enter into a stressful situation. Yeah. And it's been my observation that the more smaller, acute, hormetic stressors, so we've been talking about these U stressors, so something like exercise or the breath, the breathing technique that you've been talking, you know, breath work that you've been talking about for self-regulating your nervous system, temperature manipulation. Whenever there's, again, my observation and of one, but I'm I'm sure that this is this we can replicate this on a larger scale. But whenever there's an accumulation of some of these smaller transient acute stressors, it often will augment the person's ability to deal with the distressor. So maybe your partner is um, speaking or behaving in a way that is inappropriate or your boss or your 
or whom, you know, whatever, whatever social construct or, or, or example that you might fathom, but your mental grit, let's say, is augmented when you are able to engage in some of these practices on a regular basis. And at least, you know, for me, I can say I exercise very regularly and it's a lot of lifting weights or some cardio, but a lot of it is lifting relatively heavy weights for my size and my frame. And I find that doing hard things and particularly first thing in the morning, like there's a cold plunge usually in the morning and then there's like exercise and then some meditation afterwards. Doing those things, if I can get those done in the beginning of the day, it's like the rest of the day is is easy because I've already pushed myself. It's ar- I've already done something that's very difficult mentally and physically and it helps me adapt to whatever, you know, whatever I'm going to be dealing with later that day. Would you agree? word that's really interesting that we don't talk about enough. And hormesis really means to put ourselves under stress in like a safe in in a safe environment. Mm -hmm. So a great example of that is a hot coals, hot, like cold plunge and sauna, right? So you think about what are you doing in those situations? You're going into the sauna, you're heating your body up to a very high temperature, and then you're leaving the sauna when you're really hot and it's unbearable. And then you're going and sitting in, in a very, very cold uh, environment. And then you're switching back and forth. And that creates a environment where we're exposing the body to heat stress, but we're doing it in a way where you know you're safe and you know you can get out whenever you want. But to to a certain extent, the more that you push yourself gently to you know, immerse yourself in those environments, the more you train yourself to be able to adapt to stress more effectively. And it's the same thing that, and I think this is actually what's so important that's also not taught well about stress, is that stress, stress coping, stress resilience, bouncing back from stress when it comes is completely trainable. And how much we see stress as distress, survival threat versus you stress, stress we can grow from and become stronger after overcoming in a safe way is good for us. And um, how much we practice stress tolerance or discomfort tolerance for the small things like doing an intense workout in the morning or doing hot cold plunge or doing even things like meditation where you have to, or mindfulness where you're, you're drawing your awareness to what might be the observation of uncomfortable thoughts, but as you notice them, you kind of just observe them and let them go without making any meaning or judging yourself or the thoughts themselves or the feelings. And that process trains us to be more stress adaptable, more adaptable to general things in our environment. It boosts our heart rate variability as a metric of improving adaptability, and it helps us to be closer to our full potential because we can adapt to anything, right? Like part of the beauty of being a human is that we are some of the most adaptable and most highly functioning creatures on the face of the earth. We have overcome tremendous challenge as a community and as individuals. So it's so hormesis and this practice of building stress tolerance and discomfort tolerance is this incredible training tool that we can start when we're children and continue throughout our whole lives. It helps us to build more resilience to stress, bounce back more quickly, uh, make more sense of stress when it comes and and adapt. 
And then maybe one day we can all be Dr. Suzanne Sodberg, who's getting the, you know, the Baltic Sea or wherever. I don't know exactly where she is, but it's like two degrees centigrade, which is about, I don't know, 35-ish uh, Fahrenheit. You know, I have a cold plunge in, in my basement and I've just gotten it down to 13 degrees centigrade, which is about 55 Fahrenheit. And I feel like I'm winning until I see that she's in like two degrees Celsius or, you know, thir- 13 or so Fahrenheit. So or sorry, 30, 30 or so Fahrenheit. So something to look forward to as well as I train my my cold tolerance is that, as you said, you know, very adaptable. We're very adaptable individuals and like working your cold tolerance in, in, is similar to working weights on a barbell, right? It's like the more you do it, the stronger the muscle gets or the stronger your your ability to withstand that temporary transient stressor becomes. It, exactly. And, and we see that with people like Wim Hof, right? And people right. who are, who excel at this mind-body, practicing this and training this mind-body control technique, right? Where through breath, predominantly breath and physical fitness alone, somebody like Wim Hof can swim in like Arctic waters and yeah. can not get hypothermia the way that most of us would because he's trained his body to be resilient to that kind of stress and many other and it translates into many other stressors so it's absolutely trainable and i think and and it's trainable for free right like breath is free meditation and mindfulness are free working out and doing basic aerobic exercises in your house and doing stretching and movement are free so the core of how we train ourselves to be more resilient actually requires no expense except time but time is also challenging to find for many of us who have busy lives and so that led into why we developed Apollo, which is a technology that starts to give us and re- and remind us how to get some of those benefits of adaptability and resilience training, but without when we haven't learned that coming in. And you know, I never learned how to do this stuff growing up. I never learned it was even important. So this is really a a thing that um, is helpful to all of us as adults. Yeah, I I have to say it, I I agree wholeheartedly with your uh, earlier comment where we should be teaching our children how to do this. It should be part of the curriculum, whatever school, whatever type of school, they should all be learning how to breathe. They should all be learning how to regulate their nervous system because as an adult, you know, I can say that that is the ultimate flex. <laughs> you know, it's like if you have a regulated nervous system, that is the ultimate flex in life versus sort of always being in this sort of sympathetic dominant state where you're just waiting for the other shoe to drop. I have a friend, she was, she had this traumatic event happen to her where she was part of a, there was a a terrorist attack. She ended up surviving it. But even to this day, she will walk into a room and she's scanning. She's like, okay, where are the exit points? I need, so she does that odd. It's part of her sort of default and it's been ingrained and it's been activated so many times in her brain now that she walks into a room. She's like, okay, how am I going to, if something goes wrong, if this all goes sideways, how can I get out of here? And so I think that there's a lot of individuals. I mean, you don't have to be part of a terrorist attack to, to engage some of this type of, I don't want to say dysfunctional, but maybe dysregulated behavior. I think that as a collective in, you know, in modern life, we are just we are stressed out in and when i say stressed out I've, i'm i'm saying like chronic low grade inflammatory stress. So it's not a transient, you know, there's like a, there's a defined delta of time where it's like, you're going to go to the gym for 45 minutes and you're going to crush it. And then it's going to be over. It's like, this is every day, all day. So maybe you can give us a little bit of insight just from your clinical practice and research endeavors, why you think we are so collectively 
stressed out. And when I say stress, I mean the distress that we've been, that we've been talking yeah. about. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, to the point you made about your friend who has what we call hypervigilance, meaning constantly work, constantly concerned about how to She's get out. Always scanning, always scanning. Always yeah. Scanning, right? Yeah. Yeah. That, that, you don't have to be personally in a terrorist attack to have that. We see people all the time who have that experience from watching the stuff across the world on TV, right? People mm -hmm. who are just experiencing it remotely by proxy are because we're so connected as a, as a world now through television, internet, et cetera, that, you know, we're not, we're, we're not just getting the information from what's happening in our community every day. We're getting it from the whole world. And there's a lot of wild and crazy stuff happening in the world all the time. That's not necessarily happening right here in our communities. And so our bodies can still react to that, even though we weren't actually there. And that's kind of the beauty of human of being a human is that we can empathize and connect with other people. But if we're overstimulated by too much going on, there's too much information coming in, just just too much, too loud, and set off our stress response, right? So it's not our our bodies evolve to respond to stress the way that stress used to exist in the wilderness, in the jungle, in the forest, in the plains, right? Which was really loud noises, really bright lights, surprising things, new things, things that capture our attention with sense of alarm. All of those things start to trigger our bodies to get into a stress response. Because if you look at the way that we evolved over hundreds of millions of years from the oldest mammals to the oldest reptiles, who all share the same stress and fear response nervous system that we have, which was actually discovered by Eric Kandel, who's also a, a very famous psychiatrist at Columbia who won the Nobel Prize in 2000, this system, the stress response system we're talking about goes back hundreds of millions of years. And it detects too much, too fast, too loud, and it detects newness. And so newness being a sign of uncertainty, right? So what kinds of things do we like that make us feel calm and safe most often? It's things that, that remind us of familiarity, right? They remind us of things we know. And so that's why when we're under stress from too many emails, too many phone calls, too many responsibilities, too much news, it's harder to make change in our lives. It's harder to create new behaviors and new habits because new means uncertainty evolutionarily. So our bodies actually oppose learning new things when we're under threat or we perceive ourselves to be under threat and stressed out in distress. We, it's, it, we, learning new things actually shuts down. So how do we make sure that we, this is a big problem of, of ADHD in modern society, right? If you're, if you have ADHD or attention issues or you're anxious, we often see those going together and kids that are more anxious have more attention and focus issues because they're worried about stuff. And when you're worried about stuff, it's hard to focus and it's hard to learn. So, so that is a core of what's happening. And, and the body takes this, this input of too fast, too much, too loud, like construction sounds outside your house or, you know, spending too much time in busy cities, busy streets that are overwhelming or just having too much on your plate at any given time as distress by default. So that means again, by default, like that's how our bodies are interpreting it automatically. So it's up to us. And this is why it's so important to train all of our, all of each other and our children in these techniques from an early age or any age is because 
it's all about the what makes us adaptable is reminding ourselves that this thing that's coming in that seems to be making me stressed out, maybe this isn't actually a survival threat right now. Maybe this is just something that is making me uncomfortable. Let's let's feel where that's coming from. Ask the question of why might this be causing me to worry or feel anxious or upset or uncomfortable right now? And then actually going in and solving that problem with a wide open lens, right? A wide viewpoint, not tunnel vision, which is what happens when we enter into a fight or flight survival distress response. So that is asking these questions and sitting with those feelings is because we're not, thank goodness, chased by lions that much anymore in our society is what helps us to question the meaning of stress when it comes in and determine with a conscious mind does this fall into the camp of distress, actual survival threat right now? Or does this fall into the camp of something that seems like a survival threat, but is really just frustrating, difficult, annoying, uncomfortable, etc. And then if it falls into that camp, it, be- it can become you stress by understanding it, working with it, whether it's just us or with somebody else talking it out, and then figuring out how to solve those problems. Does that make sense? Yeah, that completely makes sense. Hey, Bettys, I hope you are enjoying this episode as much as I am. We're going to take a squeak, a little short break, so you can hear a word from our sponsors. One of my foundational skin practices is daily red light therapy directly on my face. Red light therapy direct to the face will help reduce the appearance of fine lines and wrinkles, scars, blemishes, and it will promote a firmer, more youthful looking skin. I use the Bond Charge face mask every morning for about 20 minutes while I'm checking my morning emails and starting my workday. The mask is equipped with the most optimal wavelengths of red light at 630 nanometers and infrared light at 850 nanometers. Using red light therapy regularly on the face will help to reduce the appearance of scars and blemishes, redness, and fine lines and wrinkles. So if you are wanting glowing, younger, firmer looking skin this year with minimal effort or time without really changing your usual day or night routine, head over to bondcharge.com forward slash better and use the discount code better at checkout. And that gives you 15% off your entire cart. But if you're looking to change the appearance of your skin, go for the face mask. I promise you will not be disappointed. I would love for you, if you can, to walk us through mechanistically. So you mentioned, you know, our, you know, reproductive function, immune function, digestion. These are the things that you know, typically if you are in a stressed out state, you're not really thinking about, you know, invading pathogens. You're just thinking about surviving. You're not thinking about digesting your lunch, certainly not thinking about reproduction, hopefully not. So maybe just walk us through kind of mechanistically, these things are getting shut down. Like we are preferentially diverting resources away from these systems. And where are we putting, like what, what is happening in the body when we are sort of in this state of distress, the sympathetic dominance that you're describing? Yes. So if you think about it, again, going back to the ancient ancient human times, the you know ancient animal times 100 million years ago, when you're in the wilderness, if you experience a threat signal from the environment, that means that, which is like lack of food, lack of air, lack of water, lack of shelter, or a predator chasing us, it's really those five things. And that's it that causes an immediate threat to us and our safety and survival then those things or the perception that those things might be in jeopardy creates an immediate reaction in the body that activates our fear center that sends all available resources in our body to the things that get us out of that situation and back to safety. 
So that's the skeletal muscles that move us and help us to fight or flight, right? It's our heart, our lungs, our motor cortex of our brain that controls all of those muscles. And those require a lot of, of blood flow to get us out of those situations. And there's only so much blood to go around. So where does it come from? Well, it comes from all of those, those systems you just mentioned that we normally want to feed with blood during our recovery when we're safe. So that's our reproductive system, our immune system, our digestive system, our empathy system, our metabolic system, and our sleep and recovery system, amongst others, which are all things governed by the vagus nerve, which is the primary nerve of the parasympathetic recovery nervous system. And when we experience threat or distress or anything that seems like distress, the body almost immediately clamps down on the blood, blood vessels that are feeding those recovery nervous system organs, the reproductive system, digestive system, et cetera. Because if we, if we're diverting resources to digesting food or metabolizing food or, or reproducing or empathy while we're being chased by a predator, we couldn't, might not get away. Right. So the body evolved to shut down blood flow and resources to those organ systems and send it all to skeletal muscles, motor cortex, fear center, et cetera. That's great in the moment when we're actually being chased by a predator. That's absolutely essential for survival. But when you have too many emails, your boss is giving you the side eye, you're watching, you know, you're participating in anything, hanging out with your family, winding down after work, whatever, we don't want our resources being taken away from our empathy system and our reproductive system and our, you know, digestive system. We want that to be getting resources again because we're safe. And that's part of the problem of chronic stress is that it constantly saps resources to that stress response fight or flight system and it leaves our recovery systems under-resourced, which means you're asking, and we're still asking them to work, right? We're still asking our bodies to digest their food and to reproduce and to fight off illness and to be empathic and sensitive and all these things, but those systems don't have any or very little blood flow and they have very little nutrient delivery and they have no waste pickup because the blood does both things, right? It delivers nutrients and it also picks up waste and, and eliminates waste from those organ systems. So over time, those systems start to dysfunction, which is what's what in large part neuroscience and, and medical research now is starting to point to this system dysfunction as a, as a major root cause of much of the illness we have, which is really interesting. So it's really the regulation of that stress response and reminding ourselves what is actually a survival threat and what is not that helps to re restore normal blood flow that actually helps our system to function the way we want it to. Do we have biomarkers? So could we, or, or if we were to send someone, you, you know, you had a patient and you're like, this person has had a sordid history that we are suspecting that they're sort of sympathetic dominance. They are always scanning, as I was mentioning with one of my friends. What are some of the things that we might think about in terms of blood work? Like I have a few things in my mind that I would probably want to scan, I would want to screen for, but I'd love, I'd love your, your input here. Yeah, you know, it's a good question. And I think this is a question that the field has been struggling with for a long time because we haven't had for the entire history of mental health research, and I'm talking, you know, the last hundred years, unlike unlike a lot of our physical disorders where we can measure things in the blood that are showing that the body is not doing well or that the body's doing well, we don't have a lot of those good biomarkers for mental illness or for stress. Um, because there's so many things that stress changes in the body 
over time that it's really, really hard to just take a blood sample at any one point and understand, okay, this person is under chronic stress or this person isn't. And that's still a challenge. And some of the things that we look at are inflammatory markers and and things like homocysteine and cortisol and things like that. But the problem with those is that measuring them at one time point is not usually enough information to predict how somebody's doing over time. And they require a lot of effort to measure. And they can often be expensive tests to run. And so what neuroscience is showing, which is really interesting, and the neuroscience of stress is showing is that we can actually understand a lot about stress by not taking blood, but actually going through the skin itself. So things like simple things like blood pressure, resting heart rate and heart rate variability, which is the rate of change of our heartbeat over time, are actually proving to be much better predictors of our overall recovery and stress balance in our bodies than the blood biomarkers. And they're much cheaper to measure. You can measure them with wearable technology, right? You can measure them over time, across time very easily. Mm -hmm. And so... So these are really interesting markers and heart rate variability has really come to the surface over the last 10 years because, uh, and it's entering more into Western medicine, but it's, it's, a, it's become one of the best predictors of how likely we are to bounce back from illness, how likely we are to bounce back from stress and how likely we are to get sick if we are not recovered. And so this has become a really interesting biomarker that can be tracked continuously over time using things like the Aura Ring, the Apple Watch, Whoop, and other devices that give us a lot of insight into how recovered somebody is and how likely they are to bounce back from stress or have a negative or or compromising stress response. Let's double click on HRV. I have, I've had Kristen Holmes from Whoop on the show. We were talking a lot about recovery. I think Whoop is great. I'm, I'm currently wearing an Aura uh, Ring. I tend to actually wear the Aura Ring I'm wearing it during the day now, but it's it's. I tend to only do it at night because that's when I want to see like my what my HRV reading is. But let's actually talk about HRV. I know my audience is familiar with it, but just you know, back of the envelope, what's HRV? What are we looking at? And maybe some insight into why it seems that some individuals have a very high variability, and then others seem to have a very low low variability. It's a it's a really great question, and it. You know, HRV is, in short, it's it's the rate of change of our heartbeat over time. So if you imagine that you have a 60 beat per minute heart rate pulse, that your heart your heartbeat, we often think, is beating exactly one time each second. But that's not what's happening. What's actually happening is sometimes our heart beats at 900 milliseconds, and sometimes it's 1.1 millisecond, uh, 1.1 seconds, and it varies over time depending on what's going on in our bodies. Because when we change our bodies, like by breathing, for instance, it changes the amount of pressure that the heart has to pump with. So it's it's almost it's never exactly one second between each beat. There's always variability, and so that's what HRV heart rate variability is a measure of. And what's interesting about heart rate variability is through the study of biofeedback, which has started in the 1960s and 70s, it, biofeedback has characterized heart rate variability very well because as we, when we're under stress, our heart rate goes up and our heart rate variability comes down. And we know that very well. When we are doing breathing techniques, slow, deep breathing techniques, like five seconds in, five seconds out, like in biofeedback, which results in a decreased heart rate, 
HRV goes up within two to three minutes. And so that so that's very interesting because when HRV goes up in those breathing exercises in the lab or in the biofeedback clinic, people report other things like decreased stress, decreased anxiety, improved mood, decreased racing thoughts. And, and then in the body, you can measure decreased heart rate, decreased blood pressure, decreased sweating, things like that, that are showing the body is calming down. So that is really where heart rate variability came from. And it hasn't been fully integrated into Western medicine yet, but it's actually come up through the elite athletic and military communities because it's been found that people who have low heart rate variability, so on the order of like 20 to 30 milliseconds or less, which is actually most people these days because we're all under so much chronic stress that we are more likely to get sick. We're less likely to recover quickly when we get sick and we are more likely to make mistakes, more likely to perform inconsistently, less likely to ha- to remember things we learn. Um, and it's really become a sign of vagal or recovery nervous system activity that we can measure through the skin, which is really interesting. So when you think about what kinds of things, so the main thing about HRV is that it doesn't really matter where you start because everybody's starting out in a slightly different place. What really matters is that it trends upward over time. And so, and there's no peak to HRV, which is a really interesting metaphor for human potential, right? We don't know what our potential, what is, what we're capable of in terms of our potential, but we know that we have the ability to adapt to stress and that by doing things that, like I mentioned earlier, the breathing, meditation, mindfulness, yoga, soothing touch, soothing music, and just doing things that soothe the body, all of those things increase vagal tone, which increases heart rate variability, which increases our ability to bounce back from stress. Does that make sense? Yeah, totally. And do we do we know if there's a genetic determinant to HRV? I mean, to your point, so many individuals that I speak to, I would include myself in this camp, chronically low HRV. Like it just looks like a flat line, right? And even, you know, with the Aura, if you if you are familiar with the app, you'll look at the HRV score overnight. And what I typically look for is a lot of up and down. So to your point, like the more the variability, the better. Mine has been improving. And we'll talk about the Apollo in, in a moment and how I feel like that's really improved my HRV, but just chronically low. So I'm like, is there a genetic component to it? Does it change with age? Does it like hydration levels? Do those matter? You know, food timing? Like, are there things that input your HRV? Or is it just you sort of have, it, it is just a measure of how well recovered you are? Like, can you speak a little bit about some of the determinants of what your what your number is? And I like what you said, as well, we'll just sort of highlight that, you know, it doesn't actually matter what the actual number is. It's just that over time, the trend goes up, which is which is important. But just sort of wondering about the specifics of of the starting point, I guess. Yeah. I mean, again, we don't have all the answers yet. I don't think as a field, we understand if there are substantial genetic contributions from our parents or our ancestors that would impact HRV at this point. Is it possible? Absolutely. Is it possible that stress and trauma that our parents or our grandparents have experienced or our ancestors have experienced over time is passed down to us that results in us being more likely to have a lower heart rate variability or being more likely to respond to stress in a maladaptive way, it's absolutely possible. But I think the jury's still out on exactly what the contribution is there and how much that contributes to HRV. The things that contribute most to HRV are sleep because sleep and deep and REM sleep specifically, our deepest stages of sleep are the parts of our 
entire day and our entire lives where we recover the most. And so if you're not getting good restorative deep and REM sleep, you're waking up a lot in the middle of the night, you're struggling to fall asleep and get good restful sleep every night, your HRV is going to be low. And if you think you're sleeping well, but you're not actually sleeping well because maybe you sleep restlessly or maybe you have a lot of stress and you have a lot of stress thoughts at night or you're taking a sleep a sleep aid like a sedative like Ambien or or a benzodiazepine or something like that all of the or or you're drinking alcohol to go to bed right all of those things will decrease our quality of deep and REM sleep which decreases our heart rate variability so those are really the easy targets that we know of now that dramatically impact HRV and our overall recovery long short and long term and when we start to get deep and good restful sleep on a regular basis and what we see is that HRV goes up and then we know that both sleep and having a high HRV are predictors of better health span so longer healthier and better longevity longer healthier life right and some of the people who have been studied who live the longest in the world who are happy healthy people like blue zone folks these people have the amongst the highest HRV for their entire lives they're getting good deep restful sleep almost every night they might drink a little bit but they are getting good deep restful sleep every night and they are having in general less stress less distress during the day so it's these it's these combinations of things particularly and starting with sleep as a major focus that is the source of boosting our recovery and boosting our HRV in the long term so this is so important for all of the women that are listening to the show so i have women who and i talk a lot about you know, the differences in how we are different hormonally and physiologically, metabolically in all the ways throughout, you know, the woman's menstrual cycle, but then also in perimenopause, the number one. So women who are cycling, it's the luteal phase where they struggle the most with sleep. And then perimenopausal women, the number one complaint that I have from my perimenopausal ladies is, I don't know what happened. I turned 44 and now I can't sleep. I can't, yep. I have problems initiating sleep and I have problems maintaining sleep. So certainly there is a sex hormone contribute, you know, the, the wild oscillations in estrogen, the, you know, decreasing progesterone that can be contributing to poor sleep for these women. So what are some of the strategies potentially, and this is maybe where we can sort of bridge a conversation with we've talked, we've, we've been sort of dancing around like meditation and breath and touch as ways to augment sleep, because this is, this is such a big problem for my community and myself included. I'll just put myself in here that I don't sleep well every night. There are nights where I'm up there's, I'm thinking about things or, you know, my son comes in with a nightmare or something. Um, so sleep is, is something that is so important as you're saying, as a recovery practice, if we're thinking about this from a longevity lens, but maybe even putting a female centric longevity lens on this, how can my perimenopausal and menopausal women improve, improve their sleep as a way to improve their HRV? Yeah, it's a great question also. And I think this is one of the biggest questions of our times because insomnia in the, in the, in the uh, Western population is at higher rates than it's ever been. And it's especially rough in populations like perimenopausal women, like you're talking about. But women in general, whether they're perimenopausal or, or postmenopausal or they're still in their primary menstrual cycle phase are all 
ex- all experience or tend to report experiencing more sleep issues than men, which is interesting. And I think that, you know, the things that if, if going back to this core theme of what helps us get better recovery and, and boost our functioning of our recovery nervous system, the vagal parasympathetic nervous system, it is safety, right? Because when we are, when we are entering into deep and REM sleep states, that is one of the most physically vulnerable states of our entire lives in deep REM sleep and deep sleep. We can be physically paralyzed, right? For a short amount of time. We're not, we're not able to quickly respond to a physical threat coming into our environment. So when our bodies sense any kind of threat, whether it be actual threat or whether it's something like a threatening thought, like thinking about stress from work the next day, the next week, thinking about things we could have done better the last day, the last week, and being hard on ourselves, judging ourselves, and we're trying to fall asleep, or even simple things like thinking about how something's changing in me, in the case of many perimenopausal women, something's changing in me, and now I'm afraid I can't sleep anymore, right? That thought of I might not be able to sleep anymore or might not be able to sleep well anymore is actually something that makes us feel unsafe to go to bed and to get that deep restful sleep. And so it all comes back to what things we can do to restore our sense of safety and control. Thinking about the future, as in I might not be able to sleep anymore, something might be happening to me that I can't sleep anymore, is what we call like a future casting thought. And we don't know that we can't sleep anymore. We just know that we're struggling right now. And so thinking about and the future of our sleep when we're trying to sleep tonight is not actually helpful and it actually sabotages our sleep at a very fundamental level. So a lot of what we teach people is these techniques of, of control that we talked about earlier, which are the thought techniques of knowing, hey, I'm a human being. 99.9% of human beings evolve to sleep a third of their lives. I'm no different, right? I evolved to sleep too. My body wants sleep. I just need to allow it and remind it that it's safe enough to get good sleep. And when we think about that and know without a doubt that 99.9% of all humans on the face of the earth evolve to sleep, it might even be higher percentage than that. There's only a couple families in the whole world that have ever been studied that actually biologically lose the ability to sleep. And it's like a couple families. So that means everybody else evolved to sleep and has the whole biology in there that works well to sleep, then we have to hit the safety system, right? And so that's where soothing touch, soothing music, slow, long, deep breathing techniques, weighted blankets that activate soothing touch system, right? Stretching, movement, all of these things remind us of of things we can do that restore a sense of control for us, that reminds us that we are safe enough to take control over how we feel. And Apollo taps into that because many of us have never learned how to make ourselves feel safe using these techniques, right? Very To be very realistic, like, like I never grew up learning how to do any of this stuff. And so using things like Apollo helped, and the reason why we developed it is because we needed tools that helped to deliver that sense of safety to the body on the go that help us feel safe enough to wind down, right? Safe enough to enter these deep sleep states that we may have created a sense of distress around in other parts of our lives. So it's so it's really about helping us feel safe enough to transition into sleep that tools like Apollo and breathing and soothing touch and soothing music 
and stretching and all of these control techniques unlock for us. Hey, Bettys, I hope you are enjoying this episode as much as I am. We're going to take a squeak, a little short break so you can hear a word from our sponsors. Taking care of your health isn't always easy, but at least it should be simple. That's why for the last five years, I have been drinking AG1 every day, no exceptions. It's just one scoop mixed in with water once a day, and it makes me feel energized, nourished, and ready to take on my workout. That's because each serving of AG1 delivers my daily dose of vitamins, minerals, pre and probiotics, and more. It is a powerfully healthy habit that is also powerfully simple. If there's one product that I had to recommend to elevate your health, being a supplement minimalist myself, it would be AG1, and that's why I've partnered with them for so long and why they have been a sponsor of the podcast for so long. So if you want to take ownership of your health, start with AG1. Try AG1 and get a free one-year supply of vitamin D3 and K2, as well as five free AG1 travel packs, which are a life send when you are on the road. With your first purchase exclusively at drinkag1.com forward slash Stephanie, that's D-R-I-N-K-A-G, the number one dot com forward slash Stephanie. Check it out. I think, you know, in terms of female health, the more that I speak to experts such as yourself and others, feeling safe is a core fundamental for expressing female health. Like we just have to feel safe, even in our relationships, you know, I've, I've follow some, you know, coaches who talk about like leaning into your feminine or leaning into your, you know, like masculine and feminine sort of these energies. And a lot of the leaning into your feminine is around, do you feel safe with your partner? Do you feel safe to sort of let the mask down and to let, you know, the, let's say the the aura of masculinity, like the achieving and the success, and I'll take care of it. And I'm an island and I'm self-reliant and I don't need anyone. Can you put that down and actually surrender and be, you know, more vulnerable? So I think that, you know, what you're saying around feeling safe with sleep is so important. And I remember my training when I was back in chiropractic school, it was, I think it was like for maybe first or second year, there was a, one of our professors said, listen, you guys are going to learn tools, you are going to possess these fundamentals that are going to change the anatomy and structure of someone's body. But do not, for a moment, let it go to your head and think that it is just the tools and the techniques that you're applying. It is the touch. Like you are touching someone's back. You are touching someone's skin, like if it's a knee or it's a spine or a neck or pelvis or something. And adults are not touched in the way that children are, you know, this morning, my child was having you know difficult morning, what have you, hugging him and like stroking the back of his neck and stroking his spine. And so many adults are not touched. And so I think that there's this, um, I think my professor was trying to instill in us like, yes, you're going to get people better, but let's not all develop God complexes here because part of the healing that's happening is just human touch, right? So you could be the worst chiropractor on the planet, uh, and you're going to get benefits, you know, you're going to have, you know, better prognosis, better outcomes with your patients just by way of having this therapeutic um, touch. So I think that it's, it's your point is really well taken and it sort of reinforces a lot of my own clinical experience and certainly, you know, what we're talking about with women and sleep and feeling safe. I think that that's, it is such a cornerstone, I think, of, of health for, I mean, men as well, men need to feel safe, but I think that there's a core fundamental for women to feel safe in order to heal, in order to get better. 
Yeah, absolutely. And, and a lot of it is, you know, continued on from a long history of women being unsafe, right? Which we often don't acknowledge as a society, but women, you know, have been in a more vulnerable position since our mutual coexistence on the earth, right? Mainly because of a strength differential, physical prowess differential, right? Women have a lot of incredible strengths and men have a lot of strengths, but there are differences and in the way that we exert control over a situation. And, you know, to really make this real for a lot of women who might be listening to this show, this doesn't just impact sleep. The ability and the importance of feeling safe is critical to all parts of our lives, even to achieving climax with our partners, right? And we right. we don't, this is just something we don't talk about enough, but to the point you made earlier, you know, the statistics show that something like 70% of women who are surveyed never achieve climax, sexual climax with a partner, right? That is a tragic figure. We see almost 100% of men achieving sexual climax with their partners, but only, but, but over 70% of women do not. And what is and the leading theory behind why women don't feel feel able to achieve climax with their partners is because they don't feel safe being vulnerable with another human being, particularly a man who might have the uh, strength, prowess, and the ability to take advantage of them or what have you in any given situation. So when guard is up, right, guard and and we're in a situation where we might potentially perceive threat, we have to be on guard about anything like our physical safety. We can't let go and turn on that reproductive system fully that allows the achievement of climax, right? Or the achievement of deep and REM sleep. So this safety really extends out into all areas. And, you know, going back to Apollo, what's really interesting is we've seen not just improvements in deep and REM sleep and overall sleep for, for women and men using it, who are, we're all undertouched in our lives as adults, as you said, but we also see improvement in women being able to climax in sexual interactions with their partners. So there's a really interesting theme here around safety that spans across our entire existence. Well, I mean, I don't know if that's like, that's probably the best sales pitch ever for <laughs> as a reason to get Apollo. But I will say I've been using, I'm actually wearing it today because I thought it would be fun to, I think that the mic can actually pick up the, the, the vibration, but tell us a little bit about, tell us what is happening when we have an Apollo neuro on. And I'll say I've been, I use it at night. So this is part of my evening routine. There's like a 120 minute setting, like for sleep that I, I do, i have it almost on every night. And, you know, back to the HRV that we were talking about, I have, as I was saying, prior to sort of consistently using Apollo, almost like a flat line. And I'm, I'm embarrassed to tell you the number, but it's it's usually like, if it's a really bad, it's like 18, my HRV. But if it's a good night, it'll be like 30, that kind of thing. Now it's my aura ring will consistently tell me that I'm about my age or higher. So it's like 45, 55, and then it'll Earth have big, and it'll have big peaks. So it'll have like peaks at like 70 or 80, which I know is not the, you know, I'm not going to win any prizes for my HRV numbers, but to your point, it's the trend upwards, right? It's like starting at like 20, 25, and now really consistently being in like the 40s, 50s with some of these higher peaks over over the course of the evening. So talk to us a little bit about touch therapy and some of the sound, like what what is happening when we're wearing it? Because this looks different. You know, for those of you that are watching on YouTube, you'll be able to see like there's no there's no face, right? There's no face to it. It's just like a strap that you can wear on your wrist, 
which is, I know there's other, I know you can do it on your ankle and on your clothes and stuff, but talk to us about what's happening when we're wearing this device. So it's, so Apollo delivers and you felt this, I think when you experience it, which is that slow wave of soothing vibration when you turn Mm -hmm. it on. Yeah. And that slow wave feels slightly different to everybody, but you know, to a lot of people, you know, it feels a lot like a cat's purr. It feels like getting a hug from a loved one, somebody you like and trust holding your hand, stroking your back, right? Taking some deep breaths. And, and the reason why it feels so similar to all of those different things is because all of those activities are inducing a similar safety state in the body that says, hey, if I have time to take this deep breath or if I have time to feel this soothing touch through a hug or somebody holding my hand, then I can't possibly be running from a lion right now, right? Because if I was running from a lion, my nervous system, whether we realize it or not, my nervous system evolved to shut all of that stuff down, right? I wouldn't give me time to take a deep breath if I actually had a lion around the corner. And our bodies know that. So when we start to give ourselves that soothing sensation of this gentle vibration of sound waves from the Apollo, which we figured out in the lab at the University of Pittsburgh in the Department of Psychiatry, we figured out how to give, of course, not all of the benefits of soothing touch, but just some of the benefits of soothing touch to us as adults and children who might not be getting enough of it in our day-to-day lives, which is most of us, as you said earlier, right? Us as adults, soothing touch is our fastest pathway to safety. It is instantaneous, it or nearly instantaneous. It requires no effort to receive, and it almost immediately increases parasympathetic vagal nerve tone in the body. And what we showed in the lab is it doesn't really matter if it comes from a loved one hugging you or it comes from the from a wearable, getting that soothing touch to your body helps our bodies to recover and to enter sleep states and relaxation states more quickly and more effectively and to stay there longer. So Apollo is a new wearable that we developed from that research at the university that you can wear anywhere on your body. Most people who wear it to sleep actually wear it on their ankle, which is my favorite spot. You can wear it anywhere. And it works through our touch receptor system to signal to that system that we're safe enough to recover And then it also vibrates at a very specific rhythm. That slow wave is the rhythm that our lungs get into when we enter a meditative state. And that's about five to seven breaths per minute. And what we figured out in the lab is if you send that specific rhythm to the body, it not only feels nice and soothing, but it also within a couple minutes starts to automatically trigger our lungs to breathe at that rate which is about a half to a third of what our normal breathing rate is, which is 12 to 18 breaths per minute for the average human. So if you think about that, 12 to 18 breaths per minute is stress breathing. That's what we're breathing at most of the time. That's not what we want to be breathing at when we're sleeping. We want to be breathing at a slow, deep sleep breathing level. And that is the rhythm that starts to wind us down and slow our thoughts and slow everything down in our bodies and signal, hey, it's time to recover and unwind. And it also tells our bodies to, when entering recovery, to boost heart rate variability by slowing the heart rate. So what you're seeing is the same thing that I saw when I started using Apollo regularly is that my HRV also went from like under 30 on a regular basis to now somewhere between like 70 and 120 on a regular basis. And 
you know, where you're at is a great spot because now you're starting to see a trend upward in your body's recovery level, which means that you're going to be that much more ready for whatever comes your way during the day. Yeah, that's awesome. So it's, it's working through vibration. And did you, was it nociception? Did I pick that up? Or is it, is it pressure that we're, that well, we're working well, on? Uh, pressure and vibration sensation. Yeah. But, so there's, there's about seven different touch receptors that we know of in the skin and the bone. Some of them send, they all send different kinds of signals. Nociception is specific to pain sensation. For the most part, this is not targeting those pathways. This is mostly targeting the soothing pathways. So it's the, it's this touch receptors that pick up vibration. They pick up slow moving sensation. So like a slow stroke of your back is picked up by different receptors than fast, like poking, and it stimulates texture sensation. So the two receptors that are not targeted by Apollo are like what you described as the nociceptive receptors, the pain receptors, mm -hmm. and the temperature receptors. Temperature would be the other one. Yeah. yeah, we don't really target those. But the other, the other five to seven receptors that are important for touch that you get from holding a the loved one holding your hand or giving you a hug, those are all activated by Apollo in a way that is so similar to soothing touch that it reminds our bodies that we are safe enough to enter into a recovery state. And it's just sound waves, which is really nice. It's just slow, slow rhythmic sound waves, just like listening to your favorite song, but instead of being composed for your ears, it's composed for your body. Yeah. And it's, al it's almost like if anyone has a, not that this is an analog, but if you've ever had people with sound machines, let's say in their rooms, it's sort of like that. And I wanted to, I wanted to see if I could, I'll play the focus one here because this is the one I would use during the day. And we'll talk about the different settings, but I just want to see if the mic can pick this up. I don't know if you can hear, let's see. How great is this? Can you hear that? I can hear it. You might be able to hear it where you yeah. are, but I, I can't, can't hear it. It's can't hear it. Oh, yes. Right. Is it, for those who can't hear it, the reason why is because it's desi we designed and composed these frequencies in the lab as sound to be barely audible or sub-audible so that they work through the body better than the ears. Yeah. So because we need our ears for lots of things. So if we if we have our ears always occupied, then it's hard to do a lot of things we need to do during the day. But the body can be given some of the sensation on the go without being distracting. So it was intentionally made to be hard to hear. But if you do have an Apollo, you can hold it up to your ear and you will hear a little bit of that slow wave going up and down. And so there's different settings on the app. So the one that I typically use the most is the sleep one. It's about 120 minutes and it, it starts off stronger and then it sort of comes, it's you know more gentle as the program goes on. What are some of the other uh, settings and then p potentially how the the signal changes for those as well. Like the one I was just trying to play for you was focus because that's one that I might use when I'm prepping for a podcast or on a podcast. What are some of the different ways that we might think about utilizing Apollo, the Apollo Neuro, in addition to helping our sleep scores? Sure. And, and of course, helping your sleep starts with also helping yourself feel better during the day so that you don't drink as you don't take as many stimulants, you don't drink as much caffeine, and then you don't drink as much alcohol or take as many sedatives at night. And and cutting it doesn't mean all of these things are bad, but cutting back on them so we don't rely on them is important. You don't want to rely on a chemical, any chemical from the outside if you can avoid it to change your state because that creates addiction and dependence and creates long-term challenges for the body in terms of health. We really want to use things like alcohol and caffeine and stimulants intentionally 
so that when we need a boost, we can get it, but we're not dependent on it or tolerant or reliant on it. Um, so in that vein, we designed Apollo uh, through testing in multiple clinical trials at the University and of Pittsburgh and other universities, as well as thousands of people who have been studied in the real world to refine from over 20 different vibration patterns down to about seven patterns. Each pattern is like a song we call a vibe, which is a song for your body. And they range from most energizing, which is called energy, feels kind of like an espresso shot, to focus and social, which are like, focus is like intense, sustained attention on one thing. Social is more like a creative social flow that's great for date night public speaking, social anxiety, hanging out with your friends when you're tired or work meeting when you're tired, things like that. And then, and those are, those are the vibes that are most energizing and still calming. And then if you go down from there, it's recover, which is kind of feels like it's designed to feel like five minutes of, of moderate breathing that calms you down after it's great after any stress, physical, mental, emotional. And we have a lot of elite athletes and professionals using that vibe in particular as their favorite to, to wind down after intense stress and sporting events. And then we have the, and that, and that's not sleepy or wakeful recover. And then we go down from recover into the much more sleepy vibes that actually really focus on winding the body down for recovery. So that's calm, which has been shown in a clinical trial that we're working on now, writing up now at the University of Pittsburgh to enhance access to deep meditative states. It helps with aches and pains, and it helps to just calm the body into, into a nice, even meditative state. It kind of feels like 20 minutes of deep breathing. Then unwind, which is deep relaxation and good for anything before bed. That's the vibe that is particularly helpful and been reported to us as being helpful for women during intimacy. And that particularly when worn on the ankle, which is really interesting. And we're exploring that more in studies now. And then down from that is sleep, which is what you put on when you actually get into bed and, and wind down for sleep. And what's really nice about Apollo is that once you set up your app with your device, you can actually go in and fill out a very short survey or manually create a schedule of the vibes and energy levels you want for your day and night. And I don't know if you've tried this yet, but I highly recommend it is you go into your schedule tab of your app and you can click create your daily vibes or set up your own manual schedule. And then it will save that schedule to your device. And then your Apollo will work continuously without your phone and it will turn on automatically throughout the day to regulate your entire sleep and wake cycle rhythm for you for day and night, um, which is the best feature overall. And, and once you set it up, you can basically set it and forget it and Apollo will do its thing for you, which is really, really nice. And a couple months ago, we just released Smart Vibes, which does all of that automatically. It's the brain of Apollo and you can subscribe to that for between 70 and $100 a year. But that is a software upgrade to Apollo we released. It's available to any anyone who has a device that will turn on automatically when we detect that you're that you're about to experience stress or we detect you're under recovered so you might need more boosts during the day and the most exciting feature about that is that we trained Apollo to detect when you're waking up in the middle of the night and turn on automatically to prevent you from waking up when you don't want to be woken up so it won't stop you from going to pee or use the bathroom it won't stop you from attending to a screaming child but it will stop you from waking up when you have racing thoughts in the middle of the night or you're waking up for a reason that is not related to something important. So that's really exciting because we're seeing that as people use Apollo consistently over weeks to a couple months, people are getting better benefits to sleep 
in terms of duration than any pharmaceutical sleep aid. Ambien gives you at most 22 minutes of sleep a night. Apollo gives you 30 without the sleep AI, without smart vibes. If you add the sleep AI, people are getting over 60 minutes more sleep a night that's concentrated in deep and REM sleep just by having the, the, the technology turn on automatically by learning about you and your data and your sleep habits. So that's kind of an exciting preview into where the future of personalized medicine is going and how technology can really work with us to improve our comfort and our health and our well-being for the long term. I mean, that is just fantastic. And, you know, to your point, there's ju- we just don't have anything like sleep. You know, you got to get the sleep. Like there's, it's just this panacea of benefits. If you can sleep well, you're going to recover well, you're going to have better mood, you're going to be able to regulate your emotions, your, ver- your, you know, your verbal acuity, your ability to think and focus and respond appropriately. We'll just say generally to your internal and external environment is going to be, is going to be there. And that's just so wonderful. I love this. All right. So where can people find Apollo? Is it like, just drop the website? Is it Apollo? I don't know the website offhand. Is it ApolloNeuro.com? Where would we? Yeah. ApolloNeuro.com. That's A-P-O-L-L-O-N-E-U-R-O.com. And if you can't remember that for any reason, you can go to the website that is named after what the kids call it, which is wearablehugs.com. And you can also find me at drdave.io. And I'd love to hear from you. Please hit me up on socials also at Dr. David Rabin on Instagram and Twitter. Awesome. It has been such a pleasure talking with you today. I think I have a few new ways that I can use my Apollo as well. So very happy that we went over that. Thank you so much for your time today. It It was wonderful chatting with you. It's my pleasure. Thanks for having me. All right, all right. I hope you enjoyed today's episode. And I must give you the obligatory legal and medical disclaimer here. This podcast, Better with Dr. Stephanie, is for general information only. And the advice, recommendations we discuss do not replace medicine, chiropractic, or any other primary healthcare provider's advice, treatment, or care. In the consumption of this podcast, there is no doctor-patient relationship that has been formed and the use and implementation of the information discussed are at the sole discretion of the listener. The information and opinions shared on this podcast are not intended to be a substitute for primary care, diagnosis, or treatment. In other words, guys, be smart about this. Take it with a grain of salt. Take this information to your primary healthcare provider and have a discussion with him or her to make the best choice that is for you. Remember, I am a doctor, but I am not your doctor. And these conversations are meant for educational purposes only. 